the campus of George Washington University, welcome to WRGW's Pin Drop, a show where each week we spin the globe, drop a pin on a different country, and take a look at the big issues facing it. I'm Francisco Camacho, and alongside my co-host, Taylor McKinney, we're here to guide you through today's show as we explore the news around Nigeria. Specifically, we'll be exploring the Nigerian general election due to take place tomorrow, February 25th. We'll be hearing from Carl Levan, a political scientist at American University and author of the book Contemporary Nigerian Politics. As always, we will conclude with an amazing panel of students to discuss the news and what our guest had to say. On today's panel, we have three members of the Pin Drop crew, Carl Mackinson, Wajia Amer, and Jacob Schwartz. But for now, over to Taylor. Before we get into the news, it's country profile time. We don't expect you to know everything about Nigeria, but we certainly, did, we certainly didn't before this week. But here's some fun fa- fast facts. The president is Mahamabu Bahari. The capital is Abaja. The dialing code is plus 234. The population is 2,300, I'm sorry, 213.4 million. Its currency is the Nigerian Naria. Its official language is, Engl- is, is English. And here's a fun fact. The United Nations estimates that by 2100, Nigeria will have the second most populous country in the world at 7,000 or 709, apologies, 791 million residents, falling short only to India and even surpassing China. Its national anthem is Arise, O Compatriots. Now let's get into the news, starting with our first big issue, the Nigerian general election due to take place tomorrow, February 25th. Nigerians will vote tomorrow in a general election for president and the bicameral general assembly. There are officially 18 candidates running for president, and most observers consider there to be a tight race among the top three candidates. The current president, Muhammad Buhari, a member of the All Progressives Congress, or APC, One of the two major Nigerian political parties is due to step down after a two-year term limit. The APC first came to power in 2015 after defeating Nigeria's other major party, the People's Democratic Party, or PDP. It was the first time an incumbent government had lost a national election in Nigeria and is considered by many to be the country's first truly democratic election. This year, Atiku Abubakar, the former vice president of Nigeria, is the PDP's candidate for president. Former Lagos governor Bola Tinubu is running for the incumbent APC. The surprise of the election is Labour Party candidate Peter Obi, the former governor of Anambra. Anambra, sorry. 
even through the Labour, even though the Labour Party is quite small, having only one of the 469 seats in Nigeria's General Assembly, Governor Obi has gained significant support and has been especially popular among young voters. In order to win, a candidate must gain a plurality of votes, that is, receive more votes than the other candidates, but not necessarily more than half, and secure 25% of the votes in at least two-thirds of Nigeria's 36 states. I realize that's a lot of numbers, but basically, the candidate with the most votes also has to receive a significant number of votes from various states. This is a fairly unique system uh, that Nigeria uses and is intended to ensure that no one ethnic group in the country can unilaterally dominate elections. If no candidate meets these criteria, the top two performing candidates will go to a runoff in three weeks. In addition to the broader issues that will influence who people vote for, there are two key last-minute factors that could have an outsized impact. One is vote buying. In 2019, 21% of Nigerians reported being offered money or gifts in exchange for voting for a particular candidate or party. It is unclear if that ratio will be higher or lower this year, but to the extent that it does happen, the APC has the most resources to bribe voters as it is the incumbent party. Indeed, incumbent parties in Nigeria commonly use state resources to influence elections. Another factor is turnout. Western media generally considered a poll by the data intelligence firm Steers to be the best poll on the election. In short, Steers found that if turnout is high, the Labour Party's Obi will likely win with 41% of the popular vote. But if turnout is low, Tinubu of the incumbent APC is favored to win with 39% of the vote. That is to say, turnout could be what ultimately decides who the next president is. Going into election day, most polls favor Obi, but many also favor Tinubu or Abu Bakr. Most experts seem to believe a runoff is the most likely scenario, but there is anything but a consensus when it comes to this. Moving on to the big issues influencing this election, there is probably none greater than security. Nigerians generally believe it has become drastically more dangerous in the country, and the data supports this to a good extent. In the six months before the 2019 elections, 3,610 people were killed in politically motivated attacks. In these past six months, 3,925 3, people were killed in political violence. That is a 9% increase. Nigeria has had a long history of conflicts between Christian and Muslim communities, with the country being split roughly in half along religious, religious lines. Since the early 2000s, the Nigerian government has faced an insurgency from the Boko Haram, an Islamic military group that aims to overthrow the current Nigerian government and replace it with a strictly Sunni Muslim regime. Among other groups, the Boko Haram has conducted terrorist attacks on religious and political groups, um, local police, civilians, and the military. In 2015, the insurgent group committed its largest massacre in Bogo, a town in Nigeria, killing more than 2,000 people. This was around five weeks before Nigeria's 2015 election, in which the then-incumbent PBD lost to the then-opposition APC. In that same year, Boko Haram gained international attention for kidnapping more than 200 girls from a school in northeast Nigerian town of Chibok. Boko Haram and other groups also operating in neighboring West African countries and the dangerous environments these groups and the dangerous environments these groups created in Mali and Boko uh, excuse me Burkina Faso have led to multiple military coups in the name of restoring order. 
Violence from terrorists spiked in 2014 and 2015. However, efforts by the Nigerian military between 2015 and 2019 led to a decrease in casualties and caused the insurgent groups to leave several provinces in northeast Nigeria. Despite the previous success, the last four years have seen an increase in terrorist attacks, though the violence is still less dramatic than it was 10 years ago. Today, Boko Haram and other insurgent groups still have large swaths of territory in the country and kidnap both rural school children and wealthy city dwellers. So, what do the candidates say about the security problem? Peter Obi of the Labour Party excuse me, proposes in, to increase cooperation with neighboring states to secure borders and prosecute criminals, bandits, and terrorists to end impunity. Bolo Tanubu of the incumbent AP, APC has promised to establish highly trained and disciplined anti-terrorist battalions to tackle insecurity in the country and double the number of police officers. Tanubu may have disadvantages, however, because he represents the APC, who has been in power during the past few years of increased violence. Similarly to Tabunu, Atuku Abakar of the PBD has pledged to increase resources for the military and the police. Now for our last big issue, and that is environmental issues. Nigeria is facing severe environmental crises caused in part by climate change. The northern region has experienced droughts, deforestation, and desertification. Areas that once had fertile soil, vegetarian, and grasslands are all being taken over by desert. States along Nigeria's coastal region are prone to flooding, according to the National Emergency Agency. Flooding in the country is, in 2022 has displaced more than half a million people. Last year, severe flooding in the Lake Chad region killed more than 800 people. Additionally, Nigeria is one of Africa's largest oil exporters, and as a result, oil spills occasionally damage the ecosystem in the Niger Delta region. Indeed, the exportation of fossil fuels has accounted for 60% of Nigeria's government revenue. Additionally, in President Buhari, uh, additionally, President Buhari signed the Petroleum Industry Act in 2021, increasing oil production to 4 million barrels per day. Peter Obi has said that he plans to transition Nigeria from fossil fuels to green energy. Atiku Abubakar has called on international cooperation on curbing greenhouse gas emissions and in providing humanitarian aid to those affected by natural disasters like flooding. Bola Tinubu has argued that the West is responsible for mitigating climate change while Nigeria is entitled to the same fossil fuel access developed countries had in decades prior. Now, as we go on to break, um, when we return, you will hear from Carl Levan. He is an American University professor. All right, folks, we are back. We're just going to transition straight away to this interview I conducted with Professor Carl Levan. He is a political science professor at American University here in D.C., and he is author of the book Contemporary Nigerian Politics. Now, you'll be hearing that introduction from me again right now. So, here we go. Hello, I am Francisco Camacho with WRGW's Pindrop. I'm speaking right now with Carl Levan. He is an American University professor and author of the book, Contemporary Nigerian Politics. Professor Levan, thank you so much for joining us today. Great to be here, Francisco. So I want to get right into it. Tomorrow, there are the Nigerian elections. Uh, what, is, what are going to be the big issues on voters' minds as they are going to the polls? What are the issues that are going to be defining who people vote for and who they don't? Yeah, that's a great question. So. The economy has really been struggling the last couple of years, and 
Um, and so that's paramount on people's minds. And I would say that the crisis is much more acute than it was when President Buhari came into office for his first term in 2015. And uh, he was reelected in 2019, and it was a pretty big margin. And I was there in Nigeria as a member of the International Observation Mission for both of those elections, 2015 and 2019. Uh, one big surprise since 2019 has been a spiraling of insecurity. And so both of those issues are really overwhelming. Um, and there are some important differences between the insecurity that Nigeria faces now in 2023 than what, uh, you know, the country was facing in 2015 when Buhari came into office on the promise of restoring security and safety. Uh, to the country. So those two issues are really, really paramount on people's minds. And indeed, they are more closely related than they have been in many, many years. It's difficult to prosper. It's difficult to develop. It's difficult to do everyday business um, with the type of insecurity that many states are seeing. Elections. Nigeria has a history of violence in their elections. There's no doubt about that. In fact, uh, only a couple days before today, there was an incident in which a Labour Party candidate for Senate was was killed in a in a shooting attack. To what extent do you see this as uh, as manifesting that history of violence? Do you think this election is promising to be more peaceful, uh, more violent, or what are the key factors that will determine violence around this election? Yeah, that's a really good question, um, and you know. Very often when we talk about election violence, we're talking about the type of violence that you described there, which is the targeting of individual candidates. Um, and that was indeed a tragic incident. And in previous elections, there have been incidents like that. Another way that we typically think about election violence is things such as intimidating voters at the polls or maybe some you know harassment at political rallies, things like that. So um, there has been an increase in that, um, this particular election cycle. Um, the Independent National Electoral Commission, Commission reported that there had been about 50 incidents against their offices and facilities in the last five years, but independent data sources uh, suggest that the number is more than triple that meaning that the electoral commission that's managing administering the elections um, is, um, is, is itself being targeted in addition to these politicians like the one that you mentioned. And much of that violence has been centered in the southeast of the country where the ethnic Igbo group um, has not really had a shot at the presidency for a very, very long time. Um, and something that I go through in my book, uh, Contemporary Nigerian Politics, is how that goes back, uh, you know, one reaches all the way back to the first coup and then the Civil War, but also to 1999 when the military stepped down and handed over power to the uh, civilian regime. And, um, and at that time, uh, you know, a lost story to history was how the Ebos really thought they were going to get uh, the candidate through to uh, during a primary party. Uh, a primary selection process, and that primary selection process became deeply, deeply fraud, flawed. So the Ebos, you know, have have felt frustrated for a very long time. 
Um, and so that, I think, does speak a little bit to the infusion of ethnicity into the election. But the Ibus, I think, have also you know, been a little bit supercharged by um, the emergence of a third party candidate who's, who's pretty exciting. Um, to go back to your bigger question about violence, I, I think if that's where you want me to go, is that, um, you know, in my research, uh, I thought that it was important to not look at just that kind of explicit electoral violence, but to think about how violence in general and other types of violence, number one, influenced what parties campaigned on, and number two, how voters decided who to vote for. So in other words, thinking about violence, not just in terms of, am I scared to go to the polls, but thinking about violence in terms of which candidate is going to do a better job ending the insurgency. You know, which candidate is going to do a better job increasing public safety in my community? And, um, you know, since I did that analysis, uh, you know, what we have seen is a really significant increase in the level of violence across the country. And secondly, a diversification in the type of violence that is visible and regular in the country. Um, so, for example, in 2015, when I was uh, doing my research for uh, that book, uh, you know, the, most of the violence was centered in three northeastern states and was um, the result of clashes with Boko Haram. Today, you know, in addition to Boko Haram and an offshoot, the Islamic State West Africa province, ISWAP, there are um, thousands of casualties from uh, clashes between pastoralists and farmers. There are, um, there's been a dramatic increase in kidnapping across many, many states. There's been a rise of cattle banditry, people stealing cattle, especially in states such as Zamfara. Um, and, um, and then uh, there's a pretty significant increase in organized criminal violence. Uh, there always had been sort of a, a, a randomness and, and a dangerous element of crime, but um, it's, it's really become quite different. So that, that level and that diversification and the, the the randomness is really quite striking. Um, so uh, that, that makes it difficult to organize elections. It makes it difficult for, um, to make some predictions about turnout and that sort of thing. But I do wanna say, and this is important, that uh, you know reliable surveys are also indicating that Nigerian voters are expecting elections themselves to be pretty peaceful. And that's extremely important um, because that tells us that uh, they've really learned something, that they're going to hold politicians and others to some sort of accountability, um, and that the norms of uh, peaceful competition have become deeper uh, in this country. Um, having said that, you know, I really think we need to keep a close eye on what happens in the aftermath of the elections. Um, and I, it sounds like the United States and Nigerian leaders and other friends of Nigeria are tuned into that. You talked a few moments ago about the third party candidate really energizing some people. I think Peter Obi, it seems, has risen to prominence with the Labour Party, who, as I understand it, only has one current member of the entire National Assembly. Uh, as as I understand it, also the front runner in the current polls, largely he achieved this because of young voters. 
In America, we associate young voters as leading very democratic, but also as there being a struggle among the Democratic Party to get them to turn out. Does Nigeria also see that same struggle that young people tend to vote less? How do these dynamics play in? Are, are these young voters going to show up for Peter Obi? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so, you know, a lot of analyses um, have uh, drawn attention to the large number of newly registered voters under the age of 35. The Electoral Commission suggests that it's nearly 40% of the voters who registered this time around are under the age of 35. Um, and that's, you know, a more common bandwidth for the uh, understanding of youth um, in many African contexts. Um, and I think, um, I think they, they're energized, you know, not just by Obi, but they're energized by the real possibility that, um, that there could be change again. Um, you know, very much of what we've learned about democracy and democratic consolidation is that, uh, when a ruling party loses and peacefully exits, it really deepens the norms of democracy. Um, and this might be a good point for me to point out that I learned about all that, um, you know, at first as an undergraduate in political science at George Washington University. So, um, you know, very pleased to see, you know, some of these litmus tests for democratic consolidation playing out and to, you know, play a role in, um, in studying and expanding understanding of Nigeria's democratic journey. I want to go, this might end up being my last question, but back, we've talked about, you've authored this book in, in 2019, Contemporary Nigerian Politics. As we're already seeing in this discussion, arguably that's that's outdated in some ways, um, but you, you provide a really compelling analysis in it, I would say, and you argue that electoral outcomes in Nigeria are usually explained by three factors, as I understand it. Subjective uh, evaluations of national economic performance, so perceptions of economic performance, uh, objective measures of economic conditions, and enthusiasm for the opposition candidates' economic promises. A lot of economy, the objective, the potential, the subjective, based on these three factors, if you apply them to what we're seeing today, where do you see what do you see the election results as being? Yeah, so thanks for drawing that out. I think you get an A. Um, so, I, you know, it's important to distinguish between the subjective and the objective measures, because sometimes the subjective measures matter more. Um, you know, for example, sociologists see all this all the time when they study crime, where people think that crime has gone up in their neighborhood. And then you look at the police statistics and it's actually been pretty stable or gone down. Um, so that's, you know, really what we're talking about with subjective perceptions. You know, what I found in the 2015 election was that the subjective perceptions aligned, you know, pretty well with what was going on with the objective per perceptions. Um, or objective indicators, um, and also that people were really putting a lot of hope in Buhari that that they were, and that meant that they were believing the campaign promises um, of an opposition candidate, and that was a pretty big deal, you know, in 2015 in a country that had never seen an incumbent political party defeated at the polls. And this is a country that has been having elections since 1960. So that was a really big deal for that to happen. And that generated a lot of optimism. 
You know, I also um, closed the book Contemporary Nigerian Politics by talking about the unfinished work of rule of law. And so, um, you know, that was 2019. It came out just a couple of weeks before the 2019 election. And so it was no surprise to me um, to see the outpouring of criticism of the special anti-robbery unit, the NSARS protests in Lagos and all across Nigeria. Um, and, and, and that is a really big difference from where I think the country was 10 or 15 years ago in talking about human rights. You know, human rights and rule of law were often seen as these um, external ideas that were coming in to sort of criticize our country. And what NSARS was um, really a dramatic sign of was, first of all, the um, increase in repression of state power, which shows across, um, which shows up across, you know, a number of different in indicators. Um, Igbo secessionists that I interviewed in 2017, you know, talked about that as well, um, as have several human rights reports um, by human rights organizations. But, um, you know, I, I think there's, um, you know, there's, there's hope and there's progress, um, and the country's going, you know, a couple steps forward. So the issues, um, you know, are a little bit different. Um, and I think it's really important that Nigerians see the election unfolding peacefully, but we do have to stay vigilant for what happens afterwards. Just to hammer in the question, though. Yeah. What do you see? What do you see the outcome being? Who do you who do you think, based off of your analysis, is most likely to come away as president? Are we most likely heading to a runoff? Who do you see controlling the assembly? Great. So this is like you, you interviewing for a job on uh, uh, Good Morning America or something. That's good. <laughs> so um, I think there's a high probability of a runoff. Um, and this is not just because of the individual qualities of the candidates. Um, it's also because of Nigeria's peculiar electoral formula where you have to win a geographical distribution of support across the country in order to win outright in the first round of the elections. This is a really neat idea. Kenya is another country that has an electoral system like that. And the idea is that you can't just rely on your own ethnic group to get elected. Um, and so that's really important. And that, I think, has helped build a culture of accommodation and coalition building. Um, you know, I think, uh, you know, the momentum of Peter Obi as this outsider third party candidate and the um, the energy in fact, of the energy of Peter Obi in uh, other parts of the country, um, you know, next tier, uh, uh, a think tank and consulting firm in Abuja published this survey, which said that, um, you know, he was a strong first for uh, for rural voters. Um, and uh, and also it's been, you know, I think awkward for Tanubu of the APC, the incumbent president's party. Because um, with the collapse of the Naira, the currency, with the dramatic rise in debt, um, he's really had to distance himself from his president's party um, and his president's policies over the last couple of months. And he's he's had to do this in such a dramatic way that, um, you know, some folks I'm talking to really feel like it's, it's backfiring on him a little bit. Why are you running from the APC ticket? if the APC has made these big blunders over the last couple of weeks. And um, and so, um, you know, so I think there's a very good chance of a runoff. But beyond that, it's, you know, it's anyone's guess. 
you know, for what it's worth, uh, we spoke two weeks ago with Dr. Jennifer Cook at our own George Washington University. I think you're acquainted with her. Um, she's, of course, in Nigeria right now. Um, as she told us the same thing, that she sees a very high probability of a runoff. But I guess we'll wait and see uh, tomorrow. Professor Carl Levan, thank you so much for joining us. Professor Levan is an American university professor and author of the book, Contemporary Nigerian Politics. Again, Professor Levan, thank you very much. Thanks so much, Francisco. All right, folks, we're going to a break right now, but when we come back, it is time for our signature student panel. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back from the break. On today's panel, we have Carl Mackinson, we have Jacob Schwartz, and we have Wijia Amr. They are all members of the crew here at the uh, uh, here at Pindrop. So, I want to start with uh, a sort of U.S.-centric question, um, Jacob. If I could direct it towards you first. Um, we t Carl Levin mentioned towards the end of the interview that Nigeria has this unusual electoral system where geographic distribution of votes matters. So you can't just have more votes than any other candidate. You have to get at least a 25% vote in two-thirds of Nigeria's states. This reminded me a lot of the Electoral College. I mean, do you have any takes on why this system... But when we talk about the Electoral College often in a very negative way in the U.S., uh, how do you see these two systems as comparing in the context of Nigeria versus the United States? How do you see them comparing on mechanisms? Ooh. Uh, that's a very interesting question. So in terms of how, they're, how are they comparing on, on mechanisms... I would say they're definitely both very very different systems of, of voting processes, both within the United States uh, and Nigeria. Basically, um, they're all they're two completely different they're two completely different countries. Basically, in terms of the in terms of the mechanism in terms of the mechanisms. Well, I'm not an IA major, so but so technically, basically, I basically I don't exactly know like basically the full entire process of how. How Nigeria carries out, carries out their votes, but I would say, I would say they're the, I would say they're, they're going to very significantly different because obviously um uh, the, the the processes of how the government carry, carries out the carries out the voting processes in Nigeria is going to be significantly different uh, than how it could, how how it, how it is done here in the USA. So that's kind of my take on the difference uh, between the mechanisms. Let, let's talk about that voting process a little bit. Um, there is arguably some debate in Nigeria as to whether it is a true democracy or a hybrid regime. Now, Jacob, you might not be an international affairs major, but I am. So to simplify the difference, um, a hybrid regime, folks, is one where the results of the election will be fairly counted, but the incumbent government can use the resources of the state to help ensure their victory, things like using state media to promote their campaigns, as an example, using taxpayer money for their campaigns, that type of thing. But in both situations, the results are ultimately counted. There's some debate as to whether which, which of those states Nigeria is in at the moment. Um, Wiji, I want to direct this at you first. Do you think that Nigeria, from your understanding, has reached the point of a full democracy? Do you think it's still a hybrid regime? And, and more importantly, um, when we look at other countries, what do we expect a timeline to be? H how long should we expect it to take for Nigeria to be a true robust democracy on the level of like a European country, for example? Yeah, I would say um, that I think we're it's sort of in like the hybrid democracy as you described. I mean, we sort of mentioned that there is some vote buying, getting people to vote, p 
paying them to vote. I mean, we've seen this in America's history kind of similarly um, with the, I guess, the political machine. Um, but yeah, I would say we're, we're, it will take a couple years considering that this is a bunch of people like are registered to vote. This is like one of the biggest um, elections in Nigeria's history. I would say that, you know, it's, it's definitely on the course to be uh, a more fair democracy. Um, but yeah. Any other thoughts from our from our panelists, Carl Jacob? Um, well, Nigeria is a fairly young. This is Carl, a fairly young democracy. Um, I believe it started what in nineteen ninety nine, and before that, it was just a series of coups. Um, so I think that's important to keep in mind that it's only about twenty three, twenty four years old. Um, the U.S. was still working out a whole lot of issues in its first two decades of existence. Um, so, in a way, it's unsurprising that Nigeria is still de- dealing with the ghosts of its legacy and of its past. Um, so I'd say give it a little bit of time. Um, you, you mentioned um, throughout this entire conversation, this sort of electoral shift has, has been mentioned. Um, Levan, in his book, Professor Levan argues in his book that Nigeria wasn't really a democracy until 2016, which is when an incumbent party actually lost an election. The PDP lost to the APC, APC still being in charge today. Um, We talked about Burkina Faso a couple of weeks ago. They and Mali have had a very similar situation to Nigeria. They face these insurgent groups. It's a huge security problem. And what we saw there was a military coup. In fact, quite a few military coups in both of those countries in the name of the civilian government being unable to handle the situation. Um, I want to direct this first to you, Ajia, again. Do you see any risk of a military coup in Nigeria, or does the country, from your understanding, seem robust enough that that's uh, an unlikely occurrence? Um, I think I think looking at Nigeria right now, I think it's kind of unlikely. I think looking at um, Boko Haram, we kind of mentioned that, you know, although casualties were spiked in 2014, 2015, I think they've kind of, kind of lowered down. Um, I see, I see a coup unlikely to happen. Um, I mean, based on the presidential candidates, um, I think they're really hopeful, I guess, in terms of, are really committed to uh, kind of making sure that Boko Haram and all these insurgent groups uh, are contained. So I don't see a coup really happening. Um, yeah. yeah. Fair enough. I, I think most people would argue the conventional indexes, uh, like the Economist Intelligence Index, for example, do consider Nigeria's uh, government, civilian government, to be more strong, more robust than, than Burkina Faso or Mali. Um, going to move on towards another issue that's facing this election besides security, and that is the climate. We only talk about this briefly in our show. We don't address it with Carl Levan. I should say I don't address it with Carl Levan. I need to take ownership for that. Uh, But it's the climate. Yeah. Um, I want to turn to what Chinubu said, who is uh, former governor of Lagos, currently running for the APC. Carl, uh, he makes this point that Nigeria should not really try to combat climate change because this was the responsibility of the West, in his words. Um, This rings to me of sort of themes of climate justice. I mean, to what extent do you think he has a point here? Or what is the point that he's getting at exactly? Why should Nigeria uh, not also help in this fight to reduce emissions? 
So I think you're absolutely right. This is an environmental justice issue, a climate justice issue. Um, it's been raised before by other people. Um, basically, the argument goes that the West, meaning Europe, North America, some of Eastern Asia, um, the developed countries basically, have relied on fossil fuels for fueling their industrial revolutions and subsequent economic gains for, in some cases, hundreds, like, you know, since the advent of the, the railroad. Um, so we've put the most carbon up in the atmosphere and therefore we should be responsible for um, taking action that will ameliorate the situation. Um, you hear the same cries from China and India, the two emerging economies that are that are some of the largest economies in the world that are trying to rapidly industrialize. Um, they say, how are you who are you to impose these limitations on us when you have benefited so profligately from carbonization and emissions? Um, I think that's a fair point. Um, but I think the larger realization is that this is a global climate crisis and everyone has to do their own part to do what they can to meet the challenge. Um, in some cases, say for Nigeria or for that matter, India or China, um, it would mean sort of leapfrogging in technology, just jumping right over the dirty fuels and getting to things like solar and wind or uh, tidal, geothermal or, or whatever other source even nuclear. Nuclear is a little contentious because of the, the nuclear waste, but nuclear is zero carbon. Um, so there's the potential to just jump over the dirty. The, the What it really comes down to is cost. If you can make renewables cheaper than their alternative, then um, there's the incentive there to use them as opposed to traditional dirty fuels. And China has done that very aptly with their production of solar panels. Um, actually, I, I don't know why the U.S. sort of initially gave up on producing solar panels domestically. They just sort of allowed China to, to run away with it. Um, and now China's in a position to sort of dominate the market. But that's, that's a little tangential. Ideally, you can, you can leapfrog is what I would say. Uh, Jacob, I want to take this to you because I think this is – Carl, this is a really great breakdown here. Um, we appreciate your expertise on, on the climate issues, at, le at least relative to the rest of us. But, but Jacob, we also admittedly see from none of the candidates, I would argue, a particularly strong climate change stance. We don't see uh, a whole lot, of, a whole lot of policy. Um, which, yeah, I don't know. You might have some things to say on this too. But, but starting with you, Jacob, I mean, Tinubu says, you know, we shouldn't worry about it. It's the West problem. Abu Bakr says there should be broad international cooperation, but doesn't offer a lot of specific policies. And then Obi says that we should transition to green energy, but and he's probably pushing the hardest for it. But none of them are presenting like the kind of concrete, uh, broad scope plans that say Bernie Sanders did. Um, if you are a voter who's really concerned about climate, is it going to make a big difference to you? Like, like, are these differences in their policies going to make a difference in who you vote for, or are they all so weak that it won't really affect your ballot? Okay, wow. So, thank you for that question. That was that's a really, really good question. So, I would say, 
Okay, so I'd say uh, climate change is a very is a very passionate. I am sorry, it's a topic I am like very uh, passionate about, strongly passionate about. It's what it's what's leading me towards my major. So I would say, in terms of who's establishing what processes, sorry, what processes in terms of uh, climate change, I think that probably will make a difference in terms of who I decide to vote for and what process, what processes, because I don't want, because in my opinion, I feel like it's it wouldn't make sense to me to vote for somebody who's who's considering establishing processes in terms of in terms of like reversing any problems with climate change they're going to be weaker uh, than than the one than someone who's going to attempt to make stronger practices obviously um uh like in terms of nigeria that's a very it's a very tropical climate in that country so technically in terms of the warm weather um, uh, and i don't exactly know about their fossil fuel usage but in terms of but in terms of whatever the significant problems were going on in terms of what efforts are stronger and are going to have a much greater impact at reducing the significant amount of um uh, the significant amount of environmental dilemmas that are plaguing just uh, the wildlife that uh, their habitats basically the overall surroundings and basically like the pe- where the surrounding areas where people live in terms of what like i just said what in terms of what's going to make whose efforts are going to be stronger that's definitely gonna make a difference for me in terms of um, uh, who i vote for so thank you for that question and would you can you tell us a little bit more about obi's stance on on the climate because he does seem to have relatively speaking the most robust policy uh platform on this yeah i i mean one of the big pieces of information i think that's important is the fact that the exportation of fossil fuels, as we mentioned, has accounted for 60% of Nigeria's government revenue. Um, and I sense that a lot of the presidential candidates, like, they're kind of reluctant on sort of confronting that issue just because Nigeria's government relies so much on the exportation of fossil fuels, on oil. Um, and I want to mention a quote here that, um, uh, that, as you said, that was mentioned uh from one of the presidents, Obi, that was mentioned by Obi um, recently. He said, quote, you can't be talking about climate change when people are talking, taking cover from bond, bombs, unquote. So I feel like, you know, the main issue that a lot of the presidential candidates here are mo- mostly focusing on the insurgent groups, getting them, getting them contained, I guess, uh, and sort of decreasing the amount of casualties. Um, so yeah, overall, I think climate change is is uh, not as I don't think the presidential can- candidates are going to be um, aggressively as uh, dealing with it as they are with the other issues. Um, yeah. Carl, round out this climate section for us. Uh, you talked a lot about the problems with environmental justice, just in terms of the development of these countries, more developed countries having these advantages for longer. Um, but what about the impacts? Uh, from Nigeria's geography, what you know about it, is it positioned to be particularly vulnerable or maybe suffer a little bit less than other countries? What does it have going for it? What does it have going against it in terms of the impacts? Um, well, there's a threat of desertification. Um, there's a threat of flooding in low-lying areas. Um, I believe it's coastal, isn't it? So um, there's obviously the threat of, of sea level rise. Um, so, you know, the fact that there's the potential for desertification in the north or flooding in, in on the coast, um, the impacts are severe. Um, I understand the desire to push the responsibility onto someone else, but if you experience those impacts every day as a Nigerian citizen, 
I would assume that would have some impact unless there's an active like disinformation campaign um, or just just um, willful imposed ignorance on the part of the political elite in terms of not connecting the dots for the public that increased fossil fuel use is fueling these changes in the country. Um, so it's in a bit of a tough situation. I, I would certainly say it's not insulated from climate change the way a country like Switzerland is. Um, it's on the coast. It has regions that are drier. Um, what's interesting about it is their, their actual energy use is a mix of things. But as you were saying, they, they do export a lot of oil and also natural gas. They're in OPEC. Um, they're going to be probably within the next decade or two, once the third largest country, I believe, in the world. Um, so it's a problem that's just going to continue to grow as the country grows. Um, and it's something that they'll have to reckon with sooner or later. The interesting thing will be to see whether the political leaders will um, take up the issue and connect the dots and say, this is what's causing this. And we have to act um, not just for the good of the entire world, but also for the immediate self-serving goal of our own self-preservation. Um, so it'll be interesting. So I guess the lesson I take away from that is to move to Switzerland when things get particularly bad. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> um, all right, we're, we're out of time here, folks. Um, so I just, I just want to ask you each a last thing. Um, we'll start with you, Jacob. We'll go to Wajia. We'll go to Carl. Simple question. Who do you think is going to win this election tomorrow whenever we get all the results. Who do you think is going to come out on top? And if it is Peter Obi, what do you think that means for Nigeria, just in like a sentence? So Jacob, who do you think is going to win? Just one sentence of if it's Peter Obi. What does that mean? I'm hmm. oh, sorry. Uh, Wajio, can you take it first? Yeah, I would say Peter Obi um, would be likely to win just because a lot of young people have, you know, um, registered to vote uh, in the Nigerian election. I would say one word to describe uh, would be, I guess, hopeful. I think a lot of people are going to be hopeful um, if he does get elected, I guess. Carl, who do you think is going to win? And if it is Peter Obi, just briefly, what do you think that means for Nigeria? Um, I think it'll go to a runoff. Um, in terms of Peter Obi, um, I don't think I know really enough to say what that would mean, you know, in can, in um, in campaigns, people promise a lot of things. Um, I know there's the youth factor, but we'll have to see what what that actually turns out to be. That's always the question: promises versus what is kept. Jacob, lastly, who do you oh. think is going to win? What do you think we're seeing a runoff? Oh okay, yeah, so I need to say some uh, just do some quick one minute research, but. I would say, based on what I'm, based on what I'm reading online, I would say it's it's, it's Peter, Peter OBM uh, is my prediction in terms of who's going to win the Nigerian election. So in terms of uh, in terms of uh, my reason why uh, I, he says, obviously, um, uh, so um, uh, so um, obviously, well, I mean, he's uh, I mean, so so obviously, I mean, he he knows he knows what he's doing. He knows what he knows what he's uh, what he's passionate what he's passionate about. In terms of addressing it um, uh, through the, throughout the election, in terms of um, um, uh, so so basically, what I'm reading here. So, in an article I found online, it says um, uh, as emerging voters with 
has just improved his accountability that are amplified by an army of social media social media users based on his uh, effective tactics that uh, that he uses that he, that he basically uses throughout his process uh, as a businessman. A lot of people will most likely be be in favor uh, in favor uh, in favor of uh, in favor of what he's what he's striving for to achieve. Um, uh, as yeah, it, it will be very interesting to see what he does end up achieving with that. Jacob, thank you so much. Thank uh, you. We'll we'll I'll cover your all's. Uh, outros in just a moment but we're wrapping up now unfortunately because that is our time which means it is time to spin the globe and the pin has dropped on the european union i guess it's kind of a country well we'll be exploring that and some more next week you know where to find us friday at 9 p.m eastern time on gwradio.com and you'll hear the latest news insights and analysis surrounding that kind of not really country the european union Indrop is a news department production of wrgw district radio you can listen to all of our episodes as well as bonus interviews on spotify apple amazon and google podcasts Our guest today was Carl Levan, an American University professor. Our student panelists were Carl Mackinson, Wijia Amer, and Jacob Schwartz. I am Francisco Camacho, co-anchor and scriptwriter at Pindrop, and my co-anchor has been Taylor McKinney. Our researchers are Wijia Amer and Jacob Schwartz, and Kate McCown handles engineering.